Father God, we praise you for this good news that we remember, particularly at Christmas, but all year round. We want to remember what it means for you to have come into the world in the person of your Son, to become a man, so that we might know you. Might we see this afresh this evening and understand it, or perhaps even for the first time, to understand what it means that God became a man. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, this is our final big question of the term of this series of all these different questions we've been thinking about. And we're thinking this evening about the incarnation of Jesus. So there's a couple of different ways we could ask this question. We could ask, was the man, Jesus of Nazareth, really God? Okay, that's a good question. It's worth asking. I wonder what you'd say if a friend, of you, a friend asked you that. Uh, if you're a, a Christian, um, perhaps you'd point to his miracles. He does what only God can do. He has authority over nature, over sickness, over evil, over death itself. He commands things with a word and they happen. He, he says what unless it's true. In John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, when he figures out this risen Jesus standing in front of him, is Jesus. He wasn't convinced that Jesus had risen. Now he is, and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He just lets that stand. And C.S. Lewis had a helpful angle on this, which you may have heard before. He talked about how Jesus must either be mad or bad or God. Those are the only alternatives. Was he mad? Well, if so, he's the most compassionate, coherent, compelling madman who ever lived. Was he bad? Well, no one can read the Gospels without concluding Jesus was anything but evil. He was goodness itself, surely. So what are we left with? Well, was he just a good teacher? A great prophet? Many people want to say that. But of course, good teachers don't let people call them God. So the Apostle Paul and Barnabas get called gods in Acts chapter 14 because of the things that they're doing, and, they, and people say, oh, you're, you're gods, and they start worshipping them, and they, say, they immediately say, no, 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 what are you doing? Why are you saying that? We are only men, they say. It's blasphemy to say otherwise. Of course it is. That is what a good teacher does in those circumstances, but not Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's plenty of evidence in the, in the Gospels and elsewhere in the Bible. The, the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus were very clear. He was God on earth. But we're going to look at this question slightly differently. Not was the man Jesus really God, but did God really become a man? Now in one sense it is kind of the same question and you end up in the same place in the end. Jesus is God. But this is approaching it from a different angle because rather than starting with the man Jesus of Nazareth and thinking, is he God? We're going to start with the God of the universe and think, you know, this God who made the world and everything in the world and ask, is it really possible that he became a human being? And is it really possible that he 
um, uh, did that in, uh, in Jesus. C.S. Lewis again claims that this was the central miracle of the Christian faith. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this, he says. Now that's not to undermine the central significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection for Christian faith, but it is to say the incarnation is the moment where if we're really thinking clearly, we really ought to be going, what? Really? After all, as crazy as it sounds for, for a man to rise from the dead, or to walk on water, or to feed 5,000 from a packed lunch, if he was God come to earth as a man, there's no surprise at all, is there, about those miracles? So, did God really become a man? Because it is an extraordinary thing to say, to claim that God came down. Now, we're going to think briefly about three aspects of God becoming a man that don't, maybe don't always get so much airtime at Christmas and whenever else we might be thinking about God becoming a man. But these three aspects help us to appreciate even more the wonder of what it means for this to be true. And along the way to see how it is true, how it has to be true, and how it couldn't be any other way. Okay, so three aspects of what it meant for God to become a man in the incarnation that we don't often talk about. First of all, he became obedient to death. So Paul emphasises this in Philippians chapter 2 that we heard. So chapter 2 verse 6, he was, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now some, sometimes that's translated uh, something to be used to his own advantage, which is a helpful way of, of translating it. Um, Verse 7, but he made himself nothing. And we'll come back to that. But he chose to serve, Paul says. He humbled himself. He did so obediently. He was obedient to death. Jesus' obedience to his father is emphasized, and also among others, by the apostle John. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, says Jesus in John 6.38. See, what this is saying is Jesus isn't a passive slave in the incarnation. He wasn't ordered into human flesh against his will. So a few years ago, there was a controversy around the Baptist minister, Steve Chalk, who suggested the idea of Jesus taking the penalty for sin in our place on the cross. He suggested that that was a form of cosmic child abuse, the, the, the phrase that he used. So an angry father looks around for someone to punish instead of those who really deserve it. And he picks on his son and he punishes him instead. Is that right? Now how would you pick that apart if a friend put it like that to you? Or maybe you might be asking that question. The thing is, it completely misses not just the holiness of God's wrath, because he's angry, um, you know, they're saying he, 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 that he's angry like a sinful human father flying off the handle in rage. No, it's not that kind of thing, but that's what the kind of view of his wrath that they're claiming. And that is one problem. But more than that, it misses how Jesus willingly came into the world. Willingly chooses not to be, to be served, but to serve. He willingly chooses to be obedient even to death. Think also of the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of Jesus there, feeling the weight of what he's about to do, 
sinlessly but humanly, shrinking from death and feeling the impending horror of bearing God's wrath, what does he say? He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He obeys willingly. He brings his human will into line with the divine will. Now, why does this matter? It matters not just because of the cosmic child abuse misunderstanding, but because there was once another garden with another man who was there with his wife and he was tempted to doubt the goodness of God and doubt that God's way, God's will, was right. And he disobeyed, right, and he ate the fruit, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And since then, human beings have been marked by that same disobedience. Every human being has ever lived, every descendant of Adam and Eve, every potential serpent crusher, every king born in the line of David, beginning life with promise but ending in sin and disaster, every single one could not undo that first sin of disobedience until this man, this God-man, born of a virgin, born of the Holy Spirit. That, by the way, is the, is the reason the virgin birth matters. It marks Jesus out as fully human, born of a woman, but yet completely different, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so without sin, because God became a man. And so Jesus was able to undo the sin of Adam, do you see? By obeying where Adam disobeyed, and then dying the death that Adam deserved. Only God could do this. So did God become a man? Well, do you see, God had to become a man. Only the God-man, Jesus, could obey where Adam and all his descendants, bar one, failed. That takes us to the second aspect of the incarnation that we sometimes miss then. So he made atonement. Now, in one sense, we are, we are quite used to saying God became a man in order for Jesus to die on the cross, where atonement was made so that we can go free. But there is a sense before that that we can see the gospel, we can see the atonement in the incarnation itself. So in Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to turn to that, which is over on page 1202, the author talks about how he, and it says he, and we'll think about who he is in a moment, he shared in the humanity of God's human children, so that by his death he might destroy death. And so verse 17, that he might make atonement. So who is he in verse 14? We'll track back through the verses, and Jesus is mentioned, verse 11. Keep tracking back to the beginning of chapter 1, and you find that it's the same subject that is being spoken of throughout he, Jesus, chapter 1, verse 2, he's the eternal son. He's the one who is heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, it says. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The one who sustains all things by his powerful word. He became a man by sharing our humanity in order to destroy death and make atonement through his death. Now, it is his death that achieves the atonement, but in Jesus we see God and humanity brought together. Do you see? In Jesus we see God and humanity made one. And that's actually what atonement means, at one moment. That's where the word comes from. You see, it's opening up the possibility 
for each one of us individually to be made one with God. Now, the early church worked hard to find the right language to describe how Jesus could be both God and man. And there was some sort of minority report full starts from time to time, including some who followed the teaching of a man called Nestorius. And Nestorius taught that in the incarnation, there are really two individual personalities. There's the divine son of God and the person of Jesus. In other words, God himself didn't actually become human. He just kind of stuck himself on to an individual human being called Jesus. And Jesus maintained his own human centre of personality and individuality. And on top of that, you kind of get God. But that's not actually sharing our humanity. It comes close, but there's no real incarnation. And the effect of it is to destroy the possibility of real atonement at the cross, because in the end, the one who dies is just a man. And why should the death of one man, however special or different he is, why should that death count for us in any way? In the end, salvation becomes simply following Jesus' example. Be obedient like he was. Try harder. Pull your socks up like every other religion in the world. But the early church realised that this was not how the scriptures taught the incarnation. God wasn't just bolted on to the human being, Jesus. God was Jesus. He was one person in two natures. Not two persons with two natures, which was Nestorianism, and actually not one person with a kind of mixed human divine nature. Either. Because the problem with that is, you see, if he's, if, if he's a sort of mixed um, God-human nature, then he's actually neither fully man nor fully God, because he's kind of half each, do you see? But he is one person, fully God, yet also fully man. One person, two natures. And so in Jesus we see the bringing together of God, the divine nature, and humanity, the human nature. We see the, the atonement in advance, in, brought together in one person. And because of that, when Jesus dies, it's not just a man dying, but it is God dying in his human nature on the cross. In one sense, he has to become a man because God in his divine nature can't die. God, how can God die? He's, he's the creator of everything. How can God possibly cease to be? He can't. But he becomes a man in order that he can die and he can take the place of sinful human beings on the cross. And so because then of who he is, not merely a man, but God doing that, he's able to make atonement for billions who then trust in him. So did God really become a man? Well, he had to become a man. He had to become a man for full atonement to be made and then finally he humbled himself he humbled himself back in Philippians then if you turn back to that Paul used that phrase we saw Jesus made himself nothing and again sometimes that's translated that he emptied himself and there are arguments about what exactly that means did he give up his divinity 
in the incarnation? Well, surely not, because look at the miracles. Look at how he speaks about himself. The whole point is, this is God on earth. So if you know Jesus, you really know God. You don't just know a sort of hollowed-out version of God. You know God if you know Jesus. So what does Paul mean then by this kind of made himself nothing, emptied himself? The best way to understand it is by looking at the context of how he uses the word in that verse. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Can you see that? Verse 7. That is the point. He gave up his rights. He was God, he didn't cease to be God, but he didn't use his divinity to his advantage, as we saw verse 6. He could have commanded the people that he created to carry him through the streets and enthrone him as a king in a palace, but he rode on a donkey and he washed his disciples' feet and he died a criminal's death. And that is what we see in the incarnation, and especially what we see as it starts In the nativity accounts, he becomes a helpless baby, delivered into human hands, unable to care for himself, utterly vulnerable and dependent on his human parents, utterly weak. What is the point of that? Is it just, well, this is the most efficient way for Jesus to come into the world in order to grow grow up and bide his time and die for us? That's often, I think, how we sort of shortcut think about the incarnation as if Jesus could just as well have beamed down on Good Friday and not much would have been different but he surely wouldn't have done it like this unless there was a reason something that we would miss about God if he hadn't done it and it's surely this that to be God is not to lord it over others and have others serve you, but to be God is to give yourself up, to choose to be dependent and not self-sufficient. And more than that, it reminds us that if God is willing to humble himself in this way, is there anything he won't do for his children? Paul says in Romans 8.31, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's he's gone to those lengths. He sent his son. How will he not possibly um, complete everything he's promised? And you can apply that same logic to the incarnation itself. A a friend of mine rewrote the children's song. You you might recognize this song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. And that's a great song and it's absolutely true and it's helpful to remember. But maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek, he rewrote it like this. Talking about the incarnation, he, he, he wrote... My God is so small, so weak, and so puny, there's nothing that he will not do for you. Now, do you see what he's getting at there? Do you get the point? It's not that God has no power. It's not that he is weak and puny in and of himself. But that what it means for God to be powerful, as he surely is, is to choose to give that up to become a man. Not to use it, in other words, for his own advantage. He doesn't cease to be powerful in himself, but he chooses to use his power not for himself, but for others, to make himself vulnerable. Now, of course, Jesus continued to upheld creation even as he walked on earth, even as he lay in the manger for that matter, even as they drove nails into his hands. He is almighty and he is all-powerful. That is not in doubt, but look what he does with that power. Do you see? And this has huge implications for us in all kinds of ways, particularly as we think about our own power, and maybe about our own wisdom, about love, 
What does truly great power look like? Well, it looks like utter weakness. It gives itself up for the benefit of others. If we are given power in our work or even just in our family as we seek to lead or influence, what is our attitude to power? Is it to get whatever we can out of the situation or is it to use power for the benefit of others, even to give it up? Do you see? And more than that, will we continually shy away from weakness or will we realise that God's power is made perfect in weakness, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians? We see that in the incarnation. And we need to know that in our everyday lives so we can be vulnerable with one another without fear and we can give ourselves up to one another because we know that that is the path to true greatness. So that's power. Connected to that then is wisdom. The idea of God becoming a man sounds like utter foolishness to a lost world, doesn't it? What a ridiculous idea. Now you think of how colleagues might react if they hear you talking about these kinds of things. It's totally crazy, unless it's true. So do you crave wisdom in the eyes of the world? Do, Do we crave to be well thought of by colleagues and families and friends who don't know Jesus? Because actually, unless we're prepared to embrace the folly of a God who gives himself up to become a tiny baby... We will never be wise. So there's power, wisdom, and then finally, think about love. We live in a world where it is normal to love the lovely, but it's usually contingent on getting something back. And if that doesn't happen, then the love tap gets turned off. Here is a God who shows what it means to love, to give yourself up, to serve, to do so without expectation of reward or return, to make yourself nothing, to die. That is love. So will we love like that? So did God really become a man? Well, we touched on the raw evidence of Jesus' life at the start, but what we've seen this evening is that sheer wonder and awe of the truth that God became a man. He had to become a man. There was no other way that we could be saved. There was no other way to reveal and display his glory and what it means to be God. He had to become a man, And he did become a man. So praise him. Let me pray now. Father, we praise you for the good news that you came into the world in the person of your son. You became a man. Thank you that we can be confident when we, as we get to know Jesus through your word, As your Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we can be confident that through Jesus we know you, our Father. Because Jesus was God walking on earth. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to trust in Jesus more and more. And to be confident of the life that we have in him when we trust him. Thank you for Jesus obeying where we have disobeyed, even to death on the cross. Thank you that he made atonement. And in him we see divinity and humanity brought together.
And thank you that Jesus humbled himself and showed us what it means to be God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.